Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt Kelly and I began an exploration of the Goldman Sachs FCPA enforcement action. We take a look at the internal control failures at the organization, which led to the massive corruption around 1MDB. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode. Today, we're going to take up the Goldman Sachs FCPA enforcement action and indeed worldwide anti-corruption enforcement action. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. Matt, we have, uh, if not the world's largest F, uh, anti-corruption enforcement action, certainly the largest FCPA enforcement action. Could you uh, give our listeners uh, maybe a, a summary highlight of the background facts? Uh, I'll do my best, but uh, there's a lot of facts here to condense into a short period of time. Uh, all of this stems from Goldman Sachs' involvement in 1MDB. That is the uh, economic development fund created by the government of Malaysia around 2010. And that was uh, either the brainchild of or he immediately got his claws into J. Lo, who is the international fugitive. How often do we talk about fugitives in corporate compliance? I don't know. Uh, but J. Lo, the international fugitive and fraudster who conspired with Timothy Leisner, who was the head of the Southeast Asia practice at Goldman Sachs and several other individuals, they all worked together in the early 2010s to bribe government officials in Malaysia and in Abu Dhabi to create 1MDB and then go through three bond issuances, which raised about $6.5 billion. Goldman became the investment banker that ushered through those bond deals, uh, made about $600 million uh, in revenue from the three deals that raised $6.5 billion for 1MDB, which J-Lo and Leisner and others then promptly plundered for billions. I, I can't even remember, is it $3 billion, $4 billion? I think it might be $4.5 billion. One of the largest frauds we've ever seen in history. Um, Leisner was since indicted and then pleaded out to FCPA charges. Uh, one of the other executives there, Roger Ng, has been charged, but he has uh, he is fighting those charges. He is also an ex-Goldman Sachs banker. Um, J. Lo, as we said, is a fugitive believed to be hidden, hiding away in China. And then Goldman Sachs has paid, I don't know how many billions of dollars, um, billions of dollars right now to end its FCPA involvement here uh, with other jurisdictions in, Tom, help me out if I forget any, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And the Malaysia payment actually happened earlier this summer when Goldman paid $2.5 billion to settle criminal charges that were looming in Malaysia. This is separate from that $2.5 billion Goldman Sachs has already paid, but like a boatload of money um, to settle a very serious case of uh, FCPA charges. And I think that's the whole thing, Tom, but I don't know. Did I forget any key details? 
No, uh, I think you hit them. Uh, by my calculation, we Goldman paid a little over $5 billion in uh, total uh, settlements, restitutions, fines, and penalties uh, to a variety of government agencies uh, in the countries you named. We have the largest FCPA fine, uh, which uh, is estimated at between $2.2 billion to $3.2 billion or $3.1 billion. It's not completely clear. Uh, we have... Uh, Fines to the Fed for $154 million, to the Securities and Exchange Commission of $400 million, with a $606 million profit disgorgement to the um, Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, two authorities in Singapore, governmental authorities, yep. got $122 million total. And the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England uh, in the United Kingdom each got $63 million for a total of $126 million uh, fines and penalties paid in the United Kingdom. The three bond offerings yes. that you mentioned uh, included, uh, uh, you really, you can't, at least they're not named Death Star, but there were Project Magnolia, Project Maxis, and po- Project Catalyze. And one of the things that struck me about each one of these offerings, and they were about uh, 2 billion, one one 1.75 to 2 billion each, one of the things that struck me, Matt, was initially Goldman was purchasing these bonds, and then Goldman would later resell them to other interested parties. That raised it to the highest level of financial risk within Goldman because Goldman was putting its own money at risk in purchasing these. And so as uh, one of the offshoots of that was they demanded a, an ironclad guarantee for these bonds, and that was where Abu Dhabi came in. The mm-hmm. uh, not the not the the big sovereign wealth fund, but one of the baby sovereign wealth funds, but a sovereign wealth fund from uh, the Kingdom of Abu Dhabi guaranteed these uh, bond each one of these bond offerings, and bribes were paid to the gentleman who ran those um, uh, Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth funds to make those guarantees, because now uh, the Kingdom of Abu Dhabi has to has to make good on those. So uh, interestingly, we had the highest level of scrutiny by uh, Goldman Sachs because they were purchasing the bonds. We had uh, a couple of other things going on. J. Lo, uh, Tim Leisner, uh, the Goldman Sachs managing uh, or partner rather, had put uh, J. Lo up to become an individual um, customer of um, Goldman Sachs. And it was at least two or three times that he put him forward. And each time uh, a portion of the Goldman Sachs compliance uh, compliance function uh, rejected him as a potential Goldman Sachs private uh, wealth customer because they couldn't determine the source of his his monies, his wealth. Uh, A couple of times, Leisner uh, put him forward, uh, put companies he controlled forward. Those were also rejected. So on the one hand, we had some pretty strong, we had some very strong language or rather actions from the Goldman compliance function and indeed some pretty strong language that we saw in several of the uh, the settlement documents that JLo should not be a uh, private wealth customer of Goldman Sachs, uh, that Goldman Sachs should not do business with this person and that he was a very high-risk individual and too high risk for uh, Goldman to do business with. Yet, um, when it came to 
what was the highest risk for Goldman itself, the actual purchasing of these bonds, he was able to get through the process or the, he, uh, the process went through with knowing that he was a part of that uh, transaction. So maybe could you walk us through how Goldman's internal evaluation process worked, Matt? Um, I can try because this was very intriguing to me. The SEC consent order singled out uh, Goldman's weak internal controls. Um, but there, when you read through all these documents, there's a lot of confusion, in my mind at least, and I, I like to think I still have a pretty good mind. Um, there's a lot of confusion about what were the internal controls that did or didn't work or were supposed to work. Um, so for a significant complex transaction, and that is the term that Goldman would use, SCTs, significant complex transactions, uh, they would have to go to basically a management review committee that would look at all of the risks around that transaction, including reputational compliance, um, regulatory risks, and financial risks. And at first, I thought, okay, the compliance functions support that management review committee, and they bring some insight to it, and then the committee decides what to do. But, you know, I when you read through the SEC order, that's actually not the process. And I'm going somewhere with this, listeners, so bear with me here. The process, as described in the SEC order, is that the input to the committee are the memoranda from the deal makers, and that would be Leisner, who was up to his eyeballs in this scheme, and I can only imagine the fabrications that might have been included in those memoranda that he drafted. But the internal memoranda would be the inputs to the committee, which would then decide, does this transaction need an extra level of due diligence and scrutiny? And then it would, various other parts of Goldman Sachs would supposedly follow through, uh, and they would document all of this follow through that was supposed to happen so that they could get the necessary assurances. That would be the output. And that didn't work. And I was really intrigued by this because I'm just, you know, it, I'm intrigued by the notion of a management review committee being the internal control. And if that is ineffective, how is the committee ineffective? And what do you do to strengthen that committee? Which I think is a question that many compliance officers would want to contemplate in your own organizations, in your own internal controls, if part of your internal control is, is not like due diligence software or policies and procedures, which strike me as somewhat mechanical, like you can improve those things, you can rewrite them, you can substitute them. But an internal control that's a committee of people using good judgment rooted in sound ethical values, if that's supposed to be the internal control and it's not working, well, how does that not work and how do you fix it? Um, and then what really gets to me is that, Tom, you and I mentioned this uh, late last week, we were talking about this case, is that this is the second FCPA enforcement case that has brushed up against Goldman in 2020. Um, earlier this year, an ex-banker from Goldman he was charged by the SEC for trying to orchestrate bribes with a Turkish client, a power company that was looking to uh, bid on energy projects in Ghana. And so the ex-Goldman banker and the Turkish power company were caught bribing the Ghanaian energy ministry. 
And I was really intrigued that uh, Goldman suffered no real harm in that FCPA case because in that case, the internal control system I just outlined for you, it worked. Um, that uh, ex-banker, I think his name was Asante Burko, who is still facing SEC charges now, um, he compiled a, a the internal memoranda he, that was the input to the management committee, which looked at this significant complex transaction. So same kind of deal as one MDB. Um, they looked at it. They had concerns. The output was that they directed compliance investigators to look more deeply at the Ghana uh, episode. They found all sorts of mischief and wrongdoing. Uh, Goldman promptly reported all of this mess to the authorities, and Goldman did not face any consequences, You know, no DPA, no fines, no disgorgement, no anything. But Mr. Burko is now facing charges. Um, so the internal control worked there. And this happened at the same time as 1MDB, and it was the same sort of significant complex transaction uh, as 1MDB, and it went through the same internal control process as 1MDB with these management committees. So somebody explained to me, why did one work well and 1MDB blew up? Um, I have to wonder if this is just about money. Because 1MDB was a far larger deal than what we were talking about here in Ghana. Um, and I, I just – I remain unclear on who were the people who reviewed these deals, uh, what was the role of a lower-level banker like Asante Burko in Ghana versus Timothy Leisner, who was running the Southeast Asia practice for Goldman. He was one of their senior most executives in that part of the world. Um, it's very intriguing to me that we have two different examples of this internal control process, uh, and one time it worked, one other time it didn't. But it gets back to my question about if the control process is good judgment rooted in ethical values. It seems to me that there's a lot of temptations there that could be uh, distorted and warped by deal size, which is a determinant factor here between the difference between 1MDB and Ghana. So, Tom, those are the kind of questions I have right now. So, Matt, one of the um, uh, questions that uh, I could not determine from the settlement documents was, uh, and the reason I went into some detail about the personal wealth management uh, client um, or our customer application for JLo was that it was put up at least two, perhaps three times by Timothy Leisner. Uh, the compliance function uh, looked at it and uh, was – uh, un, unable to satisfactorily um, answer questions raised by Goldman's uh, compliance function, and uh, was uh, J Lo was not ever uh, admitted as a personal wealth management customer. That part of compliance seemed to work. The part of compliance that did not seem to work was around the business intelligence group, which had a uh, compliance uh, component, and then the firm-wide mm -hmm. capital com committee, which was a second committee that reviewed this transaction, um, both of which are, or compliance also uh, was represented on the firm-wide capital committee group. So I guess the first kind of issue is, was compliance so siloed? Then when the personal wealth management group looked at a potential client or customer to become a part of it, uh, they would certainly perform their due diligence, but it didn't 
go forward to others within the compliance group, number one. And number two, there was a, a fair amount of criticism from the government that compliance did not ask enough questions. Well, the part of compliance that didn't ask the questions was on the deal side that allowed these three bond offerings to go through. Um, and what what was, was it that prevented that part of the compliance from at least asking the additional questions that the government suggested should have been raised in these two levels of internal controls in the form of the business intelligence group and the firm-wide capital committee. You know, so I have a couple of thoughts there. Um, first off, I am curious as to why you would establish two separate compliance groups in the first place, the compliance function and the business intelligence group. Um, and I just think as soon as you create two separate groups to pursue the same sort of thing, I guess due diligence and good business conduct, um, but they're pursuing those things in parallel for different types of transactions, personal wealth management versus big transactional commercial deals, um, you are siloing. I mean, literally, there are two different groups doing the same thing twice for two different types of transactions. I I don't know enough about Goldman and uh, how they decided to do that to say that was good or bad, but I mean that is by definition those are two separate things working in parallel. They are silos. Uh, what were the connections there to try and I don't know? Did they talk across the top of each silo to each other? That's not clear to me. Um, I would also venture to guess that it is easier to dismiss a sketchy personal wealth client because there's always some other personal wealth prospect out there who might be just as lucrative but less of a due diligence headache. Um, so it's easier probably to say we don't want to do business with that customer, but it's harder to say we don't want to do business with this sovereign wealth fund that is worth billions and billions and potentially much more. Um, you know, it, it, in the final analysis, it's still about we don't want to do business with this unsavory character. Is the character a person or is it a government with far more money and potential upside? Yeah, but it's still unsavory. Uh, but it becomes much harder to stick to your ethical principles and say, we're going to not do business with this sovereign wealth fund offering us billions of dollars in bond deals and $600 million in uh, fee revenue. Like, There's not that many sovereign wealth funds in the world uh, looking to do these kind of deals. So – I, I wonder if maybe there was just a, like I said before, the, the key determinant or discriminating factor here is just the size of the money involved. Uh, that's true whether it's JLo versus 1MDB or Ghana versus 1MDB, but like 1MDB was a lot of money and that's the one where it didn't work. Um, I, I can't get away from two plus two there and kind of wondering if the answer is four. It was just so much money they got over themselves and decided to do it anyways. So, Matt, there's a, a, a lot more to this case that we could explore, but I, I think maybe we'll save that for another episode because the, the thing I'd like to perhaps end on is as massive as this case is, uh, you were able to, certainly in your blog post today, really distill down some, some I don't want to say basic, but I thought straightforward internal control questions that every compliance practitioner has to ask. And uh, particularly if we change the name of the uh, committees from the business intelligence group or the uh, financial, uh, or the second committee rather, then uh, we have 
what's the equivalent of a um, compliance committee or the firm-wide capital committee. We have a compliance Mm -hmm. committee in a commercial corporation, which might be looking at doing transactions, um, a high-risk transaction with a high-risk customer and high-risk jurisdiction and kind of all of the issues that are are raised in these bond deals, even if, even if the amount of money is, is astronomical. So I've really found a lot of, of, uh, cogent and significant issues for, um, the compliance tech practitioner, even though this is such a massive case, um, as well. Well, I, I would just say that the idea of having an internal control that is a management review committee, that's not bad at all. I think that's a good idea, but you do have to consider, okay, so what are the inputs we want to give that committee and what are the supports that we want to give that committee in terms of, I would say, training, I would say um, follow-up policies and procedures to sort of force them to hold their feet to the fire. You know, we said that this deal might be kind of sketchy, so we have no choice but to take steps A, B, and C and then confirm that those steps were taken in our next monthly meeting or something. You have to think through that. Um, But fundamentally, a lot of it is going to be about executive commitment to good ethical conduct uh, to give the support that people on the committee would need to be able to say, it doesn't matter how much money this is involved here. This deal stinks and we shouldn't do it. Um, There was not enough of that at Goldman's committee because they looked at this deal. There were all sorts of red flags and the red flags just kind of flew away in the breeze. And and now here we are, billions of dollars in settlement penalties later. Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration of a a small yet extraordinarily significant part of the um, Goldman Sachs settlement. And I hope our listeners will visualize those red flags, not only flapping in the breeze, but perhaps even blowing away in the breeze. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance in the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Also, check out the show notes where I have additional resources available in forms of blog posts written by Matt or myself. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds. Compliance into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and proud member of C-Suite Radio. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.